So most of you know, we're a transitioning uh, downtown. My family is. We are one church and two congregations. Uh, we have this congregation here and one that meets at Central and Palm uh, downtown. And we, my family has just moved. We're going to be uh, ministering down there as well. And that transition is, uh, is going as smoothly as possible. We uh, just moved this last week. Uh, we're exhausted, as you might imagine. So uh, thank you for your prayers. Thanks for all the encouragements you guys have been sending. Um, and uh, please come and, and visit us, both uh, at our house and at the church. So first of all, at our house, we live at 10th and, and Thomas, uh, now 10th Street and Thomas. So if you know where the, um, the Children's Hospital is, right off of, of 51 North, uh, we're, just a, we're just like a mile from there. So we'd love to, to have you come. But also to come to the church. As you know, we're one church in two congregations we meet at 4 p.m. Uh, I'm going to be shamelessly plugging it all the time because I'm the new church planner down there, and so you have to put up with that. But, you know, if you're up north and you are, you know, for the weekend, you're escaping the heat, uh, and you, you know, you, you're coming back on a Sunday, it's the perfect timing, right? You, you leave on Sunday morning, you've escaped, you're trying to get back before Monday, and you can come and worship with us at 4 uh, p.m. at Central United Methodist Church is where we meet. So we'd be happy to have you. Let me read to us uh, the first five verses of 1 Peter 5 together. This is God's word. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." This is God's Word. Have you ever wondered, what is, we talked about suffering last week, if you were here, uh, we, we talked about everything that's wrong in the world, and I wonder if you've ever asked the question, what is at the root of those things? What is at the root of everything that is wrong with the world? What is at the root of everything that's wrong in my life? And you might say the answer to that is sin. When sin entered the world, uh, it caused brokenness everywhere, and we're experiencing that all the time. And that's the true answer. But take it even a step further. What is at the root of sin? What is at the root of brokenness? What is it that is the root? And I, This is a question I asked this week, um, and I was surprised to see that throughout church history, actually people have given a very similar answer to this. There's actually kind of a united opinion uh, St. Augustine, back from the 300s, if you know your church history, um, taught that there's a root to sin. And he gave the same answer as Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, gave the same answer as John Calvin and Martin Luther in the Reformation, uh, same answer as C.S. Lewis in the modern time, uh, who's not a theologian, but obviously a public Christian intellectual. They all taught the same thing. What is at the root of sin? Their answer is this. Pride. Pride is at the root of everything that's wrong with the world. John Stott said it this way, Pride is your greatest enemy. 
humility your greatest friend. Now, why would that be the case, that pride is at the root of everything that's wrong? And if you know the story of the Bible, it would make sense because uh, it's pride that led the evil one, Satan, to uh, rebel against God. He wanted to be like God, and it was pride that drove him. It's the same pride that he used to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden by saying, you will be like God if you take of the fruit. And so all sin, all brokenness at its root is that desire to be like God. It's pride. And one of the hardest things about pride, probably the hardest thing, is that it remains hidden in most of our lives. We give a show, an external show of humility often, but pride is so tricky, it's hard to see. In fact, you know this is the case because, you know, sometimes we say things like, I was, I was so humble about that that, you know, I started to feel proud about my humility. And we, it's just this trickiness to pride. And C.S. Lewis said it this way, There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular. This is him talking about pride. No fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. You see what he's saying? It's pride is this thing that uh, we don't like in other people, and yet we're blind to it in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. You want to know how proud you are, how much you struggle with pride, is how much you don't like it when other people act prideful. Because that triggers something in you, and you want to be the one who is in charge. So we often in the church, this is one of our main problems, we, we give a display of humility. Uh, we act humble on the outside, but basically on the inside, we assume that what the way we see the world is right. We assume that we have the best answers for things, and we struggle with humility and this hidden pride. My, my brother recently told me uh, about his, his working out experience at Planet Fitness. Uh, we got any Planet Fitness members in here? Okay, a couple in the back. I'm going to beat up on Planet Fitness a little bit, so sorry. Uh, not, not, nothing against you at all. Uh, but Planet Fitness, you, you know, it's, it's great because it's cheap, right? Uh, if you're not a member, you, you've seen the advertisements before, big purple uh, signs, Planet Fitness. It's, it's, a, it's a cheap model gym. And uh, low, you know, has fewer amenities or whatever, but they know their target audience. And I'm not saying you're the target audience in the back because my brother is not. He works out all the time. Their target audience is, uh, is people who are intimidated by being in the gym, right? They're intimidated by this. Their target audience is me, in other words. Um, and so uh, they have this model of gym that's kind of like a humble gym. We are uh, a judgment-free zone. So if you walk into a Planet Fitness, you'll see signs all over the place that says, judgment-free zone. We don't judge people here. If you don't know how to work out, then that's okay, which is great. Opens the door for people. However, my brother was noticing that their no-judgment policy doesn't go across the board uh, because he was seeing no judgment, uh, no critics allowed, and then right next to that sign was a list of, of things that you can watch out for, the lunks. Uh, and I don't know if you know what a lunk is. I had to look this up. Um, a lunk is how they define someone who just basically lives at the gym, right? The person who's there, maybe not the brightest person in the world. They're just working out. They're grunting. They're all into themselves. And they say, watch out for lunks. You'll know them if they carry gallons, j gallon jugs of water instead of just regular you know, water bottles like everyone else. 
Uh, if they're lifting heavy weights and they drop them, they're wearing their tank tops, even if they're grunting. I, I read a couple of stories uh, online about people being chastised for grunting. You're working too hard. Um, and so they actually have a lunk alarm in the gym. If you see someone who's acting like this, you can sound the alarm and let everybody know and publicly shame this person for working out in an intense way. And so he was noting, rightly, I think, nothing wrong with having a no-judgment policy at the gym, of course, but he was, no he was noting that the hypocrisy of that, right? No judgment unless you are different than us or have a different model than us. We're a humble gym, but there's some hidden pride there. That's the same as true of the church. We're a humble people. We should be, of all people, because we recognize that we're sinners in God's sight, a humble people, but there is hidden pride that runs throughout our hearts. And it's hard to demonstrate humility. And so what this passage calls us to in verse 5 is this, clothe yourselves, all of you, everybody, in humility, in the church. We're called to humility. And this passage talks a lot about leaders in the church, elders, and also how we're supposed to follow. But the example given and the, the, the call to everyone is to be humble. So this is the main point today. Our life in the church should be marked by humble leading and humble following. Our life in the church should be marked by humble leading and humble following. So first, humble leading. This passage is addressed to the leaders of the church, what it calls the elders. And so I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about this. And um, you, know, you may feel like I'm not an elder. This isn't relevant to me. But I think this is actually relevant to understand how the way this church works uh, on a leadership uh, scale. And also we're going to apply it to everyone here at the end. But elders are called to three things, to have certain duties that they do, attitudes, and motivations. So the duties of the elders are, are these. In, in verse 1 and verse 2 it says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So elders are called, leaders in the church are called to shepherd and to exercise oversight. Now, if we're reading that uh, with our kind of through the lens of 1 Peter, I know we only read like one passage a week, but if we were to, to read all of 1 Peter, we would see these terms again shepherd the people and practice oversight. Actually, it's the same description that's given of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, same one that we confessed our faith with earlier. 1 Peter 2 says this, You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. This is the description given of Jesus. And so what elders are called to, their duties are to be like Christ for the church, to shepherd them to oversee them. It's a rich theme throughout Scripture, shepherding God's people. It's all in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, it basically boils down to a few tasks that the leaders of this church are called to do, just so you know our job description. Uh, we're supposed to know you. We're supposed to feed you. We're supposed to lead you. And we're supposed to protect you. Those are categories that are given in a book that I read in seminary. And that is what it means to be a shepherd. Those are the duties. And just so you understand a little bit more of, of what this means, um, there are several words used in this passage about who the leaders in the church are supposed to be. Uh, verse 1 calls them elders. Uh, 
So that's a certain word that's used. There's two other words that are used, though. Shepherd the flock. The word shepherd there is, is the same root where we get our word pastor. So you have elder, pastor, and then exercising oversight. The word there for oversight is where we get our word bishop. And what we believe in our tradition is that bishop, elder, pastor, they're all used synonymously in the New Testament for the same office. Uh, Other traditions have these kind of separated out. And I do want to just describe for just a minute, again, hang with me. Uh, This is important that you understand how, how our leadership works, how it works in our church and how it works in our denomination. This is an elder-run church. Maybe you don't know it, but we're a Presbyterian church in America. Uh, again, we weren't waving that flag when you came in, like, welcome to the Presbyterian church. Uh, but it's also not something that we're ashamed of. It's, it's, it's an important part of our accountability. And the word uh, elder in this passage is presbyteros, which is where we get the word Presbyterian. We are a, a, an elder-run church. That's how our leadership works, because of passages like this. And pastors and elders are in the same category. Uh, we all have a vote uh, on what's called the session, and this is the, how the leadership works. You elect uh, elders, the people of God elect the elders, and then we help lead the church. And we also have a further distinction. In, uh, 1 Timothy 5.17 says that... Um, that elders who preach and teach, give their, their, their time to this, are, are worthy of a double honor. And what that double honor means in the context is just payment, right? There are some people who are paid to be an elder and some people who are volunteers. So we have that distinction. And these elders that are, that are running this church or leading this church are part of a bigger thing called the Presbytery that covers all of Arizona and all of New Mexico. And so we, uh, we actually report to the presbytery and have accountability that way. And then the presbytery is under something even bigger called General Assembly, which covers the entire United States. So we're a Presbyterian church in America, and we're trying to take this passage seriously. How do we shepherd the people of God where he has put us? That's our system. And, but we're not just called to duties as leaders of the church. We're also called to certain attitudes and motivations. It's not enough just to do the work of an elder. You have to lead humbly through your attitudes. In verse 2, it gives us these, these things. Verse 2 and verse 3. Um, Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. We're called to shepherd willingly, not under compulsion. It should be something that we want to do. We're called to do it generously, not for gain, not for shameful gain. If you watch late night TV and you, know, you see people asking for money, it's still a thing to use the ministry of God for shameful gain. It happens a lot. And not only that, but gently, not domineering people, but being an example I know, I just want to pause right here and say that that description of how leadership in the church should be is not everyone's experience in this room. I know for a fact that many in this room are here at this church because you've had a hard time of leadership maybe somewhere else. And we have to continue to pray that that would not be the case here. It's, 
not just the fact that you have to be a good leader in the church in a business sense or whatever. It's that you are called to be a gentle person and to care for the people of God. Some of you have been hurt by leadership and some of you still carry the scars from that. I was thinking about that this week and reminded of, of a story that I've heard before. Maybe some of you have heard it. Um, the, the Fable of the Crane Wife. This is an old Japanese folktale. It's actually the title of a Decemberist uh, album as well if you're into music. But The Crane Wife is an old fable, and this is how the story goes. Um, there was a poor Japanese man, and he had nothing. He discovered a crane, a bird, at his, at his doorstep. And uh, the, the bird had a, an arrow through its wing and was, uh, was injured. And so he took it in and he nursed this crane back to health just, for, just because he wanted to do a good deed. And so he nursed it back to health. He released the crane back into the wild. And immediately a woman appeared at his door. All right. And the, this, this beautiful woman, they, they fall in love, they get married, uh, and they're still struggling financially. And so one day, this, this beautiful woman comes to him and says, uh, I, I want to help, I, I want to make garments, beautiful garments of, of silk and to, to, to sell in the marketplace. Would you allow me to do this? And, and the man says, yes. And she says, well, under one condition, you are not allowed to come in and see where I'm making these garments. And uh, he agrees to that condition. She starts making these beautiful garments, selling them in the market, and their wealth increases. Uh, they sell quickly, and they, he, they start to grow wealthy. And, and he, the man, begins to become greedy. And he asks for more of his wife, more and more of, this, of these garments, not noticing that she is losing her health. Her health is disintegrating right before him. He wants more and more and more. One day in the, the pinnacle of his greed, he decides to break his agreement and to look into the room where she is making these silk. And when he opens the door, he sees the crane feeding its own feathers into the loom to make these beautiful garments. The crane flies away and never sees the crane or his wife ever again. It's a story about greed, about requiring more and more of other people. And for some of you, that is your story with church leadership. You've been burned by it. You've given of yourself. You've given of yourself over and over and over again. And people have taken advantage of you because they're greedy for power or money or reputation or success in the church or whatever it may be. And if that's you, then as a church leader, I just want to apologize to you today because that is not what Scripture says. That's not what we're called to do. We're not called to lead or even save people or even grow things or whatever it is at the expense of people at all. That's not what we're called to. We're called to have character and attitudes that line up with what Jesus has done for us. And so I need you to pray for this church that we never get to that point, that we're always people who are shepherding this body well and not for our own sake. There's duties, there's attitudes, there's also the motivations of the leader. The first motivation is this, godliness. It says, don't do this under compulsion, verse 2, but willingly as God would have you. The reason why we lead in the church is because this is what God has for us. It's for godliness, and that's the motivation but also because of the reward. Verse 4 talks about this. When the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, this kind of weirds people out. Uh, but actually, Scripture talks a lot about rewards uh, for, for lots of things. Reward is, is one of the motivations given for, for us to pursue after God because He does invite us into His glory. And so is that what is motivating us as leaders? We're called to these duties, these attitudes, and these motivations. And I just want to apply this to us as well. And the elders in the room need to hear that, right? Uh, you need to hear that that's required of the elders. But you also need to, to hear what you are called to shepherd. Because all of the things that are required of the elders here as it relates to the church are also given in Scripture as, as your responsibility as a leader in whatever God has given you. So I want to ask the question, what is it that God has given you to shepherd? Maybe He hasn't given you a church to shepherd, but maybe He has given you a family to shepherd. Maybe He has given you employees to shepherd. Maybe He has given you a neighborhood to shepherd. And there's certain things, there's duties, there's attitudes and motivations that go with that. Maybe you are good at those duties. If you're a parent in the room, for instance, uh, you have a duty to your children to feed them, to clothe them, to make sure that they're safe and healthy and to have shelter. I'm guessing you are doing those things. But have you, when was the last time you asked yourself about your attitudes and your motivations in that calling? Would the words used here describe of what the, the, sh- the shepherds of the church are supposed to be? Would that be words that describe your parenting or your employee-boss relationships? That you're gentle, not domineering. That you're willing, that you're generous, that you're doing this as an example for whatever God has given you. And if you ask yourself the why question, why am I motivated to be a good parent or to be good at whatever God has given me? Is it because of godliness, because you want to, to shepherd what God has given you in the same way that God has shepherded you as the overseer of your soul? You want to shepherd that way because you want to be like Christ or you want the, the crown of glory. You want the, the glory that comes from following God's way. Or is it because of the peer pressure that's around you or the, the cultural standards of being a good parent or because you want to look good on social media? You have to ask yourselves, not just what are you giving the shepherd and how you do that. It's, it's the attitude. It's the motivation. That's humble leading. We're called to, to, to demonstrate humility and leading. And that goes out to the elders and it goes out to everyone in the room. But are also called to humble following. This is for everyone, elders and, and followers alike. Verse 5 says this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. If you remember from 1 Peter, that idea of be subject to or submit yourself, that's, that's not a popular concept in our culture, but it is something that's appeared a lot in 1 Peter. We're supposed to be subject to human authorities. We're supposed to be subject uh, in our work roles and in our marriages and all of these different things that have been described. And here, we're supposed to be subject to the elders. And if you're a, a, a member here at New Valley, then that's what you've agreed to. You, you know, when you, we ask you the question, uh, do you submit yourself? Uh, will you give some accountability in your life? That is the design of this. We're called to, sub- to be subject to everyone for the sake of the gospel. And it takes humility to be able to follow like that. But it's also the key to understanding the gospel. And here's where I want to end today. Just to remind us of what Jesus has done for us. Because the gospel 
teaches us about humility. The passage ends this way. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility. And when you clothe yourself with humility, you are doing something that is essentially Christ-like. Because Jesus clothed himself in the flesh. That's actually the way that the scripture talks about the incarnation when Jesus came here. He, he, clo- he put on flesh. And when he put on flesh, he put on humility. It's what theologians call the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. He was humiliated. He became a man. He put on flesh. And not only that, that was the first stage in his humiliation. He lived the, the human experience for 34 years. He lived this life. He experienced the humiliation of suffering under the scourgings that he received and being spit upon, the ultimate humiliation of the cross. And that wasn't even the lowest point. He was then, Scripture says, buried. And that was the lowest point of his humiliation. He literally came from heaven to under the earth, his humiliation. But then the Scripture says, but God has highly exalted him. right? He raised him from the grave. He lived for a short time here. He ascended into heaven, and he sits on the right hand of God the Father. This is the story of Jesus' life. It's like a V, the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus. And it teaches us how we're supposed to live our lives. Because when you put on humility, you are putting on Christ. You are giving yourself to that life. It's actually the same types of phrases that are used in Scripture. Romans 13, 14 says this, Clothe yourself in Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.27, you've been united in baptism. You have put on, like a garment, Christ. And when you do that, you've put on humiliation. You're humble. The Bible's full of stories of the humble being exalted. I think of Luke chapter 14, where Jesus tells a story about those who, who attend a, a a banquet together and there's all these seats of honor and there's these lower seats and he says when you come in put yourself at the lowest seat so then the master can come and and raise you up and say no no you don't belong here you need to be exalted at the head of the table he said but don't seat yourself at the head because think about how bad it would be to go back and to sit in the place of humility after that it's humiliation that leads to exaltation it's the life of christ and it's what we're called to as well I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, why do we wear sports teams' gear? Have you ever asked yourself that? I, I do this too. I support my Nebraska Cornhuskers all the way, go Big Red. Uh, we probably have some people in the room wearing some ASU stuff. Come Super Bowl time around here, you know, people at New Valley are going to be sporting up their jerseys, you know, and uh, it's, it's awesome. Uh, and why do we do that? Why do you wear hats, shirts? It doesn't have to be a sports team. It can be a band or whatever. We, we put these things on for a couple of reasons. Number one, to show our allegiance. Right? We want other people, it's for the sake of other people, to know what we are into. It's an outward show of allegiance for the sake of others. But sometimes it's not for that purpose. Have you ever worn sporting clothes when you're just at home watching the game by yourself? I mean, I've done this before. Right? You do this not just as an outward show, but for yourself, as a marker of your identity. You put these clothes on. What would it look like for the church 
to put on Christ in such a way that we exhibit such humility to the world. That that is a marker of our identity. That when people see us and when the way we see ourselves is, is humbly because of what Jesus has done, that's the only way that we can advance in this. It's so hard to see in ourselves, but the only remedy is believing the gospel again, to truly see what Jesus has done, the complete humiliation that he experienced for you. That word there, clothe yourself in humility, it has a figurative sense of this, to make one's essential characteristic. To make one's essential characteristic. It's saying when you put on humility, you are putting on the, the ultimate identity marker of who you are in Christ because it so clearly demonstrates the gospel of Jesus. So is that the way that people see you? Is that the way that you see yourself? That you are so much putting on Jesus that there's a humility that comes from that? Ask yourself that question. Let's pray. God, you oppose the proud. You give grace to the humble. That frightens us, Lord, because we see the pride that is in our own lives. Our hearts are so, are so proud. We so readily and easily assume that the way that we understand the world, the way that we see things is the right way. Would you help us to put on Christ? Would you put Christ on us, Lord? We have to have you initiating this, putting him on, making us like him so that our lives look like this, this pattern of humiliation and that you would highly exalt us because of what Jesus has done. Help us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.